And are we ready? Acts chapter 16. Uh, do we have the map available to come up? We might look at that just a little bit. And there it is. Um, Acts 16, we are seeing the beginning of Paul's ministry um, in Europe. If you remember, uh, they, they left Antioch and they did a, an, an overland route. Um, we don't know that they walked the entire thing. That would have possibly taken uh, months, if not years, to do so. Uh, the Bible doesn't say how they made it. Uh, they got to this point, and that is where Paul was praying about the will of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit wasn't allowing them to go to the east, to the north, or even to the south, down into Asia. Um, and uh, so they prayed about it. Paul had the vision of a man of Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And they knew that was God's answer for them. So they, they uh, crossed the Aegean Sea, and uh, they ended up in the city of Philippi. Um, we talked a, a little bit about the history of that place, um, and uh, they, they started their ministry there. Um, they, they started out meeting uh, a group of women down by a river to pray. Uh, it appears that there was no synagogue in that uh, particular city. Uh, according to Jewish tradition, how many men had to be present in a city or town in order for them to form a synagogue? Anybody remember? There had to be at least 10, and if there were not, they could not technically have a synagogue. So what they would do is they would, they would meet together for prayer, for scripture reading, often by flowing water. Uh, the idea was so that they could do their rituals and, and some things like that. So Paul did that, and he met a wealthy lady by the name of Lydia, um, and she was a seller of what product? Purple dye. So probably, again, a wealthy lady. The Bible said she very tender-hearted, whose heart the Lord had opened. Um, and Paul and, and Silas and his team went there. And uh, Lydia got saved in her household. She invited uh, the team to come stay at her house. She took care of them during their ministry there. And thus they have their first converts, getting started well. The second person they ran into, we talked about her. She was a tormented soul, that demon-possessed girl uh, that followed them around. And after many days, uh, Paul cast the demon out of her. We assume the young lady got saved. Uh, the, the scripture doesn't specifically say that. We just kind of assume that she did. Um, and for their kindness to this young lady, for the miracle God worked, Paul and Silas ended up being thrown in prison. Uh, the devil's crowd never likes it uh, when God is doing a great work. And uh, so they were thrown into prison where they uh, now met the, the third individual. And this was the man with the tough heart, the Roman jailer, uh, who had treated them so harshly and so forth. Uh, we, we looked last week at that remarkable story, verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And so rather than complain, rather than uh, you know, shout out uh, how they were going to get even with everybody, they, they were doing exactly what any believer ought to do. Number one, they prayed, and number two, they sang praises. Both things are a powerful expression of our faith, both prayer and praise. Uh, God responded to that by sending a miraculous earthquake. This entire part of the world, earthquakes even today, very, very common. But this was unusual. Can anybody tell us 
how was this different than the normal earthquake? The doors were popped open and, yeah, the chains fell off their hands and feet. Earthquakes don't generally carry keys uh, to do that. This was of the Lord uh, and that was God's response. And we saw that, that God really does respond to us in a remarkable way when we have a spirit and an attitude of praise. We also saw man's response. None of the prisoners fled when they easily could have gone off and been safe and, and sound, but they all stayed. They all knew something unusual had just happened, more than just the rumbling of the ground and the shaking of a building. They knew that something miraculous happened. They stayed put. The, uh, the jailer was going to commit suicide, and Paul called and said, do thyself no harm. His immediate response in verse 30, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Um, when, when we honor the Lord the way that we should, it provides a testimony that's going to influence other people's lives in a positive way for Christ. Uh, the jailer got saved. Uh, it, it would appear that everyone in his household did. Verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Understand in the New Testament, baptism didn't occur three months or six months or a year after salvation. It occurred immediately after salvation. Uh, I know many churches, and I don't mean to be at all critical or whatever, uh, that will not baptize a convert uh, for a year or more. And the, the thing that they say it is, well, we have to make sure they're really saved. I know people who claim to have been saved 20, 30 years, and I'm still not sure they're saved. Uh, we, don't get, we don't get to do that. In the Bible, it's uh, you get saved, then you get baptized. Uh, and so we're then, and this man got saved, and God's just done a great uh, work Verse 35 is where we want to pick up tonight. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant saying, let those men go. The uproar of the day before has settled down. How many have ever said or done anything in the heat of the moment? And then after, sometimes maybe even a few hours pass, you're just thinking, boy, that was dumb. Has anybody ever... Please don't let me be the only one, okay? When we respond in anger, we're seldom right, and we seldom say or do the right thing. And it appears that, that, that you know, things have settled down and the magistrates have that type of a spirit. The keeper of the prison told this saying to Paul. Now, he's, he's been saved. Paul's not in the prison anymore. He's in the, the jailer's house uh, and, and uh, you know, so, so forth. And so he says in verse 36, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Jailer's thinking this is a good thing. He's delivering good news. And, and he's happy for Paul and Silas. But there's now the tables being turned, verse 37. But Paul said unto them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned, being Romans, and have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privily? Nay, verily, but let them come themselves and fetch us out. If you remember when they started the uproar, um, verse 20, uh, the, 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 man, the men who owned this girl and made money uh, off of her demonic power 
brought them, Paul and Silas, to the magistrate saying, these men being what? Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. Um, so anti-Semitism was there. They just saw them as two Jewish men. What they could not know is that Paul and Silas, yes, they were Jewish by birth, by, by nationality and all of those things, but they were also Roman citizens. Not everybody in the Roman Empire was a Roman citizen. That was a privilege that you were either born into by your heritage or you could purchase it with a very large sum of money or it could be granted to you as a favor if you did something um, very spectacular in the name of Rome uh, and you were being re rewarded with Roman citizenship. Now, Roman citizens, they enjoyed privileges that the rest of their conquered subjects didn't have. In the city of Rome itself, um, there were more slaves in the city of Rome than there were Romans. Uh, the, the, the freeborn people were uh, uh, terribly outnumbered. Uh, but a Roman enjoyed privileges. Uh, one of them is you had reduced taxes. They still paid taxes, but not like their conquered subjects. Uh, a second thing is a Roman citizen uh, could not be tortured uh, and could not be executed in an, uh, you know, uh, an unusual way. Crucifixion was out for a Roman citizen. Uh, a Roman citizen could not be thrown to the lions, anything like that. Now, they could be executed, uh, that type of thing. Uh, Paul was executed, history teaches us, by, by, by beheading quick and painless, you know, that type of thing. Um, but it was part of being a Roman citizen. They could not be tortured for information, uh, you know, that type of thing. So there were certain protections. And uh, so the, you know, the jailer can say, hey man, good news, brothers. He's all excited about it. The magistrates have changed their mind. They just, you, you get to go and, and this is great. And Paul just surprised him and he said, uh, let's, let's understand this. They beat us uncondemned. There was no trial. There were no witnesses. It was just they hauled us in. They, they beat us. Then they threw us into prison. Uh, they did so openly, and they did so in spite of the fact that we are Romans. And I can see the jailer gasp just a little bit. He knew what it meant. I see the sergeants, those men that were sent from the magistrates with the news, looking at each other going, oh, Shazam, are we in trouble? Because they have just violated Roman law. If Paul and Silas wanted to, they could press charges. And the, the might of the Roman Empire would land on their side. And uh, everybody that did them wrong would be in terrible trouble with the powers that be. And uh, Paul isn't going to do that. He has no intention. He's not seeking vengeance, that type of thing. Uh, but I sort of like a little bit of his spirit. He said, look, they, they uh, threw us here openly, uncondemned. They beat us in spite of the fact that we're Romans. And now they want to whisk us out the back door and just do it all privately. He goes, nah, let them come themselves and escort us out. That meant the magistrates had to come down 
And, uh, you know, everybody's going to be watching. Everybody, you know, when these guys made a move, you know, the whole town's going to be watching. And they're going to come in and, and, you know, treating Paul and Silas now like royalty because they're Roman citizens. Uh, you know, hat in hand type thing. And the sergeants, verse 38, told these words unto the magistrates and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. They knew they made a big mistake. Remember, when we respond in temper, in anger, in the heat of the moment, when we do not think things through, we almost always do the wrong thing. And here we have an example, and I understand these are unsaved people, um, but a lot of saved people make the same mistake. So they are, they are terrified about this, verse 39, and they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. So the magistrates came, and you can just imagine how kind and courteous. You know, the day before, it's, you know, they're, they're beating the living daylights out of these guys, you know, commanding them to be thrust into the prison and, and all that kind of stuff. The city's on edge. And now these guys are coming in, sir, can, can, can we buy you lunch? You know, they're, they're just as nice as can be. But they did have a request. Do you guys think maybe you could leave? Could you just kind of go somewhere else? They, they just, they wanted, they wanted this all done and over with. To Paul and Silas' credit, they could have pressed the issue. But uh, they weren't there for vengeance. They were there for the gospel's sake. Um, they, they were there to show even the people that did them wrong the love of Christ. Though I, I do kind of like the fact that Paul said, nah, not so easy. You, you did this publicly. You're not going to get rid of us privately. Come on down and see us yourself. The Bible says, verse 40, and they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. So we see in one chapter, the foundation of the great church at Philippi. If you read the book of Philippians, it was a letter that Paul wrote back to this very same group of people. The foundation of that church started with Lydia and her household. We assume the girl that was demon-possessed that has now been set free, we assume that she got saved and was a part of it. And then there's a Roman jailer and his household that had gotten saved. And who knows, maybe some of the other prisoners were not sure about it. So it was a very eclectic group of people that made up this church. Philippi is unusual in all of Paul's early ministry because of the fact that it, the church did not start in a synagogue. There was none there. It was not first a bunch of Jewish people that got saved and then some Gentiles, that type of thing. Um, it was a very different group of people. Um, it was, I think, a great picture of what God had in plan for his church that it wasn't just one group of people, it was just a multitude. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, my wife and I, right after 9-11, uh, about two weeks after that, that terrible day, there was a service at International Baptist Church in Brooklyn where they were going to honor first responders for an evening service. We took a couple of vans down there. Did anybody that's here go down on that trip right after 9-11? Uh, we, we went down into the city, and um, 
Brother Pinto was sort of leading the way. He, he knew Manhattan and Brooklyn very well. Uh, that night, we actually, uh, they, they rerouted us. The World Series was in town. Uh, it was a subway series that year, the Yankees versus the Mets. So one side of town was, was filled up with that. Um, and we ended up actually going right by Ground Zero. We saw those images that were all over the news, lit up with the spotlights and the cranes. Everything was still smoking. The water was still running down the streets. The, the smell was still in the air and so forth. But we went to this church, and they had many... Uh, uh, EMTs, firemen, policemen, and so forth, many of them mourning the loss of their comrades that died in the towers uh, on that day uh, and so forth. But we were, we were in a church that literally lived up to the name of International. Right behind us was a group of people from Haiti, and uh, they were sitting there, and someone was translating the service for them uh, into uh, the Haitian dialect. Uh, it was a, a French dialect type thing. Uh, right behind us. Off to another side, there were people translating quietly into Spanish. We looked over here, there were people uh, in, in sign language. There were people from all kinds of different countries, and my wife looked at me and she said, that's what I want for our church. I want us to be a church like that. And uh, we began to pray about it, and uh, it wasn't all that uh, many years later, Trina, after the service, said, do you remember that night at International Baptist? And I said, yeah. She said, I counted this morning. In our morning service, we had people who were born and raised in 19 different countries sitting in our morning service. And we came not only from different countries, but from all backgrounds. Uh, we had people with criminal pasts. We had people, uh, teachers. We had uh, uh, business people. We had medical people, the whole nine yards. The gospel's for everybody. And the church at Philippi was one of those churches that had that. Now, there is a subtle change that has taken place in Paul and Silas' team. When they went into Philippi, can anybody tell me who were the members of Paul's team? Obviously, Paul. Silas, Luke, and there was one other, Timothy or Timotheus, okay? So we had those four. We knew that Luke joined with them uh, at some point because in um, chapter 16, uh, look at verse number 10. He says, after he had seen the vision, that's the vision of the man from Macedonia, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia. The pronouns have changed. It's always been they, Paul and Barnabas, they. Paul and Silas, they. Now all of a sudden it's we, so Luke is a part of the team. Everybody with me? Okay. So they've been in Philippi. Uh, we've read the events that, that uh, took place there. Um, and now look at Acts chapter 17 and verse 1. Now when, what is the next word church they we we're back to third person it's no longer now when we had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia it is they okay which can anybody tell me what that probably means uh, they probably left Luke in Philippi to help get that new church grounded um, and, and so forth. I, I love was I studied through the Bible and, and I believe in an every word Bible. 
I believe that every word of God is pure. It's always there. There's always something for us to learn. Uh, so you see that Paul is making sure that this new church is going to get grounded in what a better person than, uh, than Luke. Uh, Paul and Silas were Jewish. Uh, it may have been deemed that as, as Jewish people, they might have run into some more opposition there. It might have been harder on this fledgling church if Paul had stayed or Silas. Timothy was half Jewish, half Greek, but had been circumcised, so he would possibly be viewed as a Jewish person. But Luke, as a Greek, as a Gentile, could possibly stay and help this church without drawing any other uh, undue attention to it. We can only surmise on that. But it would appear that Luke is uh, stayed behind for a little bit, and the team moves on. So they are at Philippi. We'll see if we can up here in this place. And they just passed through a town called Amphipolis and Apollonia. From what we know historically, they're smaller towns. Like Philippi, they too may not have had a synagogue. It doesn't appear that they stopped and spent much time there. They just traveled through. No reason is given for that. We have to assume that the Apostle Paul, along with Silas, they are spirit-filled spirit-led men, and they are just going where God wants them to go. So they came to Thessalonica, which is right there, also in Macedonia, this orange section there, and uh, that, that will be their next venture in Europe. Verse 2, and Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. So again, there's a synagogue. Thessalonica is a bigger city. There's a synagogue there, and Paul goes in, and he does two things. The first thing is he, uh, look at verse 3 again, opening and alleging that Christ, that's not Jesus' last name, that is a title. Somebody give me another word that means the same as Christ. Messiah. Uh, can anybody give me another title that means the same as Christ and Messiah? Anointed one. Okay. These were titles that the Jewish people would recognize. So the first thing that he did was he was opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. That was the first thing. The Jewish people were not looking for a redeemer. They were looking for a ruler. They were looking for a king who would overthrow the Roman Empire. And that is what they wanted. By the way, the Messiah will be that. Okay, he is the king of the Jews. The wise men were right. He is the son of David, also a title. Uh, he will rule and reign forever. Their prophecies told them that. Uh, go back with me to the book of Isaiah. Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. And let me see. I think I want you in chapter 9. Verse 6, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is one of a number of prophetic utterances in the Old Testament uh, that, that uh, taught the Jewish people that the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, would be the ruler. Um, again, uh, the government shall be upon his shoulders. So when they're looking for a ruler in Jesus' name, by the way, they're still looking for that today, um, they are not wrong because that was promised to them. What they could not understand was the same Messiah that was promised to be the ruler who would uh, rule upon the throne of his father David was also coming to redeem them. The sovereign would also suffer for them. Um, they, they couldn't understand that. They didn't understand that, uh, uh, if you will, between the suffering Christ and the sovereign Christ, there was a long period of time, we call that the church age, that was going to be between those two events. They didn't, they didn't understand that. So Paul, when he went in, this is his custom, uh, he went in opening and alleging that Christ the Messiah they were looking for, not only was he going to rule and reign, he would be their ruler, but first he came to be their redeemer. And he took them to their scriptures to prove that. Uh, look, if you would, to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22. This is a psalm that David wrote. Notice the opening words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to, familiar to anyone? Yeah, those are the words Christ uttered from the cross. It's a prophetic uh, utterance. Uh, look, if you would, to verse number, um, number um, uh, let's see, let's start at verse four. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee, were not confounded, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. The Jewish people could not understand that their Messiah would be despised of the people. They automatically assumed he's the ruler. Uh, he's gonna be revered, he's gonna be worshiped, but the prophecy here is he's gonna be despised. All that see me, verse 7, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. Do you understand that while Jesus hung on the cross, the chief priests, the scribes, the rulers of the Jews stood on the ground and they actually made those exact statements to Jesus when he was on the cross. He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him. If you be the Christ, come down from the cross. Even the thieves on the cross shot those kind of accusations at him. They were fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22. And all throughout this psalm, look if you would please, verse um, um, 
16, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. You realize that when David penned those words, crucifixion had not been invented yet. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. Before he was crucified, he was beaten with a cat of nine tails um, that would have uh, stripped his skin off of his body and muscle and so forth and exposed his bones. Read the, the uh, historian Josephus, a Jewish man who worked for the Roman Empire, uh, keeping history, and, and read his account of what crucifixion was like. And so there's the prophecy. Look at verse 18. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross, the Roman soldiers tore his clothes in pieces and divided it up amongst themselves. They would use it to shine their armor, to clean their boots, that type of thing. But he had a garment, a coat, if you would, uh, that was, was one, one, a piece of woven fabric. It would have been very expensive. That one they didn't divide up amongst themselves. Uh, they cast lots for it. They gambled for it to see who would get to take the whole thing. David's writing the prophecy, they part my garments among them. The Roman soldiers did that. And they cast lots upon my vestures. You realize when those events happened, when Jesus died, the Romans weren't looking at Psalm 22 saying, what do we have to do to fulfill prophecy? They had no idea that was there. God just knew what they were going to do hundreds of years in advance. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that and when Paul goes into Thessalonica, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and so forth, He's in Psalm 22. That's, that's part of it. Uh, turn if you would to Isaiah 53. We doing okay? Uh, the Bible is tied together. And, and we just want to understand that. Isaiah 53. This is the portion of scripture the Ethiopian eunuch was reading when Philip met him in Acts chapter 8. Um, again, let's, let's look at verse 3. He's despised. And rejected of men. It's, it's, remember Philip said, of whom is the prophet writing of himself or of, of some other man? And Philip started at this scripture and preached to him Jesus. This is about the Messiah. He's despised and rejected of men. John 1 begins with the words, he came unto his own and his own received him not. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him, his own people turned away from him. They refused to acknowledge him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The, the enemies of Christ on the cross assumed that he was a wicked man. He was a blasphemer. And what he was doing was God's punishment on him. But that wasn't the case, verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. There's the purpose of why Christ died on the cross. Do you also see there's the cat of nine tails? 
There's the beating by the Roman soldiers. Uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet opened he not his mouth. When the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees in, in their, their meeting the night before the cross were throwing all these accusations against him, what was one of the things they marveled at about Jesus? He answered not a word. Went before Pilate, answered not a word. Went before Herod, answered not a word. Went back to Pilate, answered not a word. Again, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. Remember John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And as a sheep brought before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison. He was arrested that night, was he not? From judgment, who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked. When he died, two other men died with him. Were they righteous like he was? No, they were thieves. He made his grave with the wicked. And look at this, and with the rich in his death, where was he buried? Where was he buried? Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a borrowed tomb. He only needed to borrow because he only needed it for the weekend, right? But Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy man. Do you realize the prophet Isaiah is writing this down hundreds of years before Christ? Interesting, did you know that Jewish people are not allowed to read Isaiah 53 today? They're not allowed to read it. Anybody know why? Yeah, you, you can't read it without knowing it's Jesus. Because see, the story of Jesus, the history, the historical Jesus, that is well known even to Jewish people. They treat it as myth and, and all of that. But you can't read Isaiah 53 without asking the same question as the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, of whom does this man speak of himself or of somebody else? And it, it has to come back to Christ. So let's go back to, to Acts 17. Paul's in Thessalonica. He's gone to the synagogue. He's there three Sabbath days. So three weeks worth of time. And there he's reasoning with them out of the scriptures. Paul is not offering his opinion. He is showing them from their scriptures. Now, in spite of the unbelief of the Jewish people of that time, they still believed that the scriptures were the very words of God. Now, what they called the scriptures, remember, that's our Old Testament. And they believed that that was the inspired word of God. Okay? They didn't understand it all. And they, they uh, and the people he's uh, uh, now preaching to in Thessalonica, they probably were entirely ignorant of the events that, that happened just a few decades before in Jerusalem with Jesus of Nazareth. Um, there, there was no social media. Uh, you know, there, there wasn't Fox News and there wasn't the Communist News Network and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so they, they wouldn't have heard anything about it, but they still believe those Old Testament scriptures. So the first thing Paul does is said, I want you to understand. Yes, he's coming to be our ruler, 
of, his, uh, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end, the throne of his father David, but he also came to be our redeemer. He had to suffer. So go back to verse three again. Opening and alleging that Christ, that's the title, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead. Now is the second part of it. And that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. This bold statement. He is telling these people, our Messiah has come. Our Redeemer, the one that Psalm 22, you could look at Psalm 69, uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Um, he's, he's fulfilled those, the suffering Savior. He has come. And so he would have told them all about Jesus of Nazareth. Undoubtedly, he would have traced the steps that, that Matthew did, uh, talking about all the fulfillment of prophecy. He was of the, the, the seed of David. Uh, tracing his lineage all the way back to, to Abraham and so forth. The Gospel of Luke traces the line of Christ all the way back to Adam, an extensive genealogy. Um, he was born in Bethlehem. He was born of a virgin. He spent time in Egypt. He was uh, raised in, in Nazareth uh, and so forth. And he would have gone through all the scriptures, not only that their Savior, that Christ needed to suffer and be raised from the dead, but all of that had been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, who fulfilled every prophecy about the coming of their Messiah. So Paul is spending weeks on this. I'm sure he's got a pretty attentive audience because this is pretty big stuff. This is bold stuff. Um, if tonight I were to make this statement to you that Tim Reamers is the Messiah and Tim was to say, yes, I am, that would be kind of blatant, wouldn't it? Because if it's not true, what is he guilty of? Blasphemy, and I'm a false prophet, according to Jewish law, I need to be put to death. That's a huge statement. Now, you're not claiming that, right? Okay, we'll let you go then. You're good. Okay, I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. Um, throughout Israel's history, there were, there were people that rose up and said, I'm, I'm the Messiah, I'm the fulfillment. By the way, in my lifetime, there have been people that have done that. Remember David Koresh and the people from Waco? Um, he taught his people that he was the Messiah. Now, he drank, he womanized, uh, all of those things. He actually taught that Jesus was the sinless Messiah and he was the sinful Messiah, that he had to sin so he could identify with us. And it was all blasphemy. And, and by the way, David Koresh could quote uh, the Bible for three and four hours at a time, just quote Bible without making any commentary on it. Um, you understand the devil can use the Bible too. Um, Sun Young Moon, how many can remember that guy? He claimed that he was the Messiah, so it's not unheard of. So you realize when Paul comes into their synagogue, he starts out number one with the scriptures that they would all say amen to and understand that they had 
the promise of a Savior, who, uh, the Christ, who would be a redeemer as well as a ruler. Whether they put those two things together before or not, they could not deny them because it was in the scriptures. Then Paul took it a step farther and he began to teach them about Jesus of Nazareth, a name that probably they've not heard until verse number three of Acts chapter 17. And I believe with all my heart, if you read through Paul's writings in Romans and Galatians uh, in the book of Hebrews, his mind was, was so, so saturated with scripture. Uh, uh, he was so meticulous about these things that he wouldn't have just made a statement. He would have backed up every statement he made about Jesus with scriptures, which they believed. And it was going to be a, a tough thing Now we sometimes look down on, on the Jewish people that rejected Christ, but you understand what they were being asked to accept. That was a big step of faith. How many are okay with that? Still wrong for them to reject Christ. Um, we'll, we'll walk through that a little bit next week as we're, we're out of time here. But Paul is presenting the scriptural foundation of a suffering Savior that Jesus of Nazareth was that savior verse 4 and some of them believed everybody that's presented with the claims of Christ backed up with the authority of scriptures has to make a choice we either believe it or we reject it there's no real middle ground you say well I'll, I'll think about it well that's that's still rejection it's rejection until you receive it some of them believed. That was an amazing thing. Three weeks ago, they'd never heard of Jesus of Nazareth. And now the Holy Spirit helped them to understand God, God sent us our Savior. He's come. He's died on the cross. He's been buried. He's been raised again. And the man sitting in front of us telling us all about it was probably an eyewitness. You realize Paul and Jesus were contemporaries. We don't put our history together real well. They were contemporaries. Paul was undoubtedly in Judea, Jerusalem, when all of the events were going on. When you read about the Pharisees following around, uh, we can't prove he, Paul was at this place or that place, but undoubtedly um, he was at some of those, and if he wasn't at them, he certainly was getting firsthand information. Okay? Um, and we know this much, he met him on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Christ. These people in Thessalonica are, I mean, this is an amazing thing. Some of them believed and consorted, that means they, they, they uh, identified themselves with Paul and Silas. It's more than just they went out for hamburgers after synagogue, okay? Uh, it, it meant that they're now, connecting with them. They consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. These may have been Greek people that had joined this synagogue as proselytes. They were seekers of truth, like Cornelius, the Roman soldier did. And the Bible says here, a great multitude and of the chief women, not a few. These would be the wives of the rulers, the wives of the wealthy people in town. Um, 
sometimes the ladies get saved quicker than the men. I'm not sure why. And many times there will be a situation of a lady, hey, can you pray for my husband to get saved? Uh, sometimes it's the other way around. But here it's the chief women. These would have been women of great reputation, women well-respected, women well-looked up to. And you realize that in three weeks' time, God's done such a work through this, this solid Bible preaching of Paul and Silas that a great multitude made up of Jews and Greeks and some of these, these uh, chief women have been saved and a new church has been established. And God's doing a great, great work. It's all going to change, not God's work. But the atmosphere is about to change in verse number five, and we'll get there next week. Okay? Um, I love reading through the Bible, taking the time to go back, look at the history, look at all these things that are going on. So Luke's up in Philippi helping those people get further grounded. Paul, Silas, and Timotheus are there in Thessalonica, and we're seeing what their message was really all about. Uh, it wasn't a fluff piece, okay? It was, it was three weeks of intense scripture, and God's going to do a work. Let's stop there for the, the evening. Brother Tim, do we need to tear down tonight? If you can help us for a few minutes. Obviously, you've got children downstairs. Please uh, go get them first. But if you can help us tear down, we'd appreciate it, and let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible.